Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 40 of the Essential X Labs. Uh, we're really creeping up on that 50th episode milestone, which, you know, for a side project, is uh, is pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. Now, today, hmm, well, last time, last time we had kind of a non-issue issue, right? The, uh, the whole, uh, boy, who was it? The Super Adaptoid, which was, eh, not great. Well, uh, that one's a rock-solid 5 out of 5 compared to what we have today. This one is so... I don't want to say bad, but it's so different <laughs> from what we've gotten so far to where it feels like... like it feels like an anomaly. It doesn't feel like it belongs here. It's very, very strange. Now, before we get into it, I do want to remind everyone that... Uh, we, or at least I, learned about today's Big Bad in a recent letter column, a recent mutant mailbox, where a letter hack wrote in about a mutant called Merlin. Now, Merlin had appeared in an issue of Thor, and Stan replied that, uh, you know what, we might be finding out more about this mutant soon. And at the time, I didn't realize this was more of a threat than a promise. Let's do the thing here. This is X-Men number 30, the March 1967 cover date. The story's called The Warlock Wakes, written by Roy Thomas with guest pencils by Jack Spaulding. Inks by John Tartaglioni, letters Artie Simic. We don't know who the colorist is, but uh, whoever it is, uh, they got a few things wrong here. The manicurist for the issue is Irving Forbush, which is always a very important role. Edits, of course, by Stan Lee, cover price 12 cents. Now we open with what I'd usually refer to as like the spoilery Silver Age splash, where it feels like we've been dropped in the middle of a story at like a pivotal point to get you kind of, to whet your appetite, get you invested, and then we get the backstory and whatnot for the next several pages to get us to, you know, that splash page or thereabouts. But no, <laughs> that's not what we get here. Uh, we're in full-blown current year Excalibur territory here where I feel like, and... Uh, if you listen to Original Recipe x Lapsed, you can say it with me. I feel like I missed an issue. So here's the thing. We got the X-Men being assaulted by some finger rays emanating from a giant, somewhat ethereal hand. And this is really a disaster of a page. Um, layout is just insane and not in a good way. We've got our baddie, the warlock, in the background, like, hold, like clinging onto a stone wall for some reason. I... It's bad. It's like like the worst sort of collage. <laughs> I don't know what it even means. And I should probably get it out of the way that uh, Jack Sparling's pencils, not my favorite. From here, the X-Men are whisked away toward the giant hand. Warren grabs Jean to try to stop her from getting yoinked, but the hand simply ups its magnetic pull and snaps her out of Warren's weak little arms. And I know what you might be thinking... Magnetic? Could it be? No, no, it's not him, though by the end of this we will all wish it was. So it's clear here that Jean is the one that the big hand wants, and so she's still being pulled toward the nothingness of whatever limbo that they're in. And as she nears the paw, she runs across Professor X, who's also in this limbo, and he's exhausted and appears to be unable to use his uncanny abilities. Gene physically latches onto him, likely giving old Chuck the thrill of a lifetime. Unfortunately, before the blood can even begin to flow to all the right places, the pair are addressed by our big bad warlock, an immortal. An immortal who also uh, definitely has the hot pants for Jeannie. 
the warlock is able to take Gene and Xavier somewhere. And uh, there, with a snap of his fingers, he's able to kind of hypnotize Gene into falling in love with him. He also manifests a trio of uh, what he calls mutant horses. And they're basically pegasuses, or pegasi, or however we say more than one pegasus. Gene finds them to be absolutely beautiful, and wonders if Warlock is a magician. To which he's all, nah, I'm a mutant. The trio then fly off to a nearby cavern, and along the way they're joined by Angel, who somehow managed to escape Limbo. Warlock is not too concerned about this, and then Jean calls out to invite Warren to join them. And, uh, I mean, we'll make it clear here, she says Warren, because this triggers something in the Angel pretty quickly, as the only way she'd refer to him by his real name while they're, you know, in the field, is if her mind is being controlled. And I don't want to comb through all 28 issues of this book to prove or disprove that. We'll just take it at face value and hope it's not contradicted by the end of the issue. Anyway, our quartet soon arrives at this cavern, and the Pegasus are dismounted, and they all hop on hovercrafts. Xavier wonders how Warlock can blend ancient legend with modern science. And I mean, I'm going to guess that he ordered these hovercrafts on the back page of a comic book, because they're pretty ridiculous looking, and, um... I mean, also, modern science? I'm not sure hovering vehicles actually existed in 1967. Or, you know, now. Um, Well, the crafts take them to an underground castle like something right out of the Middle Ages, only with a bunch of radar equipment and some, you know, armed Cobra operatives all over the place. They really do look like the interchangeable Cobra soldiers from G.I. Joe. Now, once inside, Warlock decides it's time to share his secret origin. Now, he wasn't always Warlock. No, indeed. He was actually Merlin the Magician of Legend, or at least posing as Merlin the Magician, because I think we know a few Merlins already. He calls himself a superhuman mutant. Now, he did battle with Thor in Journey into Mystery number 96 and Thor Annual number 2, which is to say this is one story that got reprinted in the annual for whatever reason. That story is called Defying the Magic of Mad Merlin. And uh, this Merlin was actually a character named Mahayogi. And maybe we'll hit up a fake-ass comics history on him at the other end of the episode. I haven't decided if it's worth it yet. I do have notes, I just don't know if it's, a, if it's worth the visit. Anyway, he was defeated by Thor, tricked into returning to his crypt where his ancient body had been laid. But his mutant senses didn't turn off. He was always kind of like, sort of kind of awake. And now he knows that Thor has been off-planet for weeks, and he figured that this might be the best time for him to strike. Maybe worth noting that Thor really hasn't been gone. Uh, pretty much all of his stories around now feature at least a little bit of Earth or Midgard tromping. I did go back a few issues, and he is hanging out on Earth at least part of the time. Anyway, Merlin awoke, altered his appearance, became the warlock, and, you know, created a machine that would allow him to conquer the world like you do. And uh, he says that this machine was the result of his mutant genius, and it would ultimately allow him to become the emperor of the planet. And it's here where I'm reminded that we are only on page seven. <clears throat> okay. Warlock goes to break away to show Gene the rest of his kingdom and likely indulge in some illegal activity. Warren steps in and uh, somehow knows that Warlock can only control one mind at a time. I'm not sure how he would know this. Uh, anyway... Warren decides to head in and punch the baddie. Only the warlock uses his control over Gene to telekinetically stop him. 
This isn't great. Um, now, Warlock gazes into Warren's eyes. Uh, so, okay, so are we going to assume that he stopped controlling Jean here, or... Oh, boy. Okay, so Warlock, he gazes into Warren's eyes and makes him believe that his wings have caught fire. Now, as he and Jean walk away, Xavier guides Angel over to a handy underground stream in order to extinguish his not-really-on-fire wings. Like, what are we reading? Um, okay, so the gimmick here is Warren knows the professor knew that his wings weren't really on fire, so why did he tell him to jump in the drink? Well, it turns out that Xavier isn't really powerless. He's just pretending to be in order to keep Warlock off the scent. And, you know, also with the mimic gun, Xavier's got to reclaim his spot as the guy who swoops in at the end of every issue to pull the X-Men's fat out of the fire. Okay, from here, if you can believe it, it gets even harder to follow. Um, Warlock teleports he and Jean to somewhere. He then teleports back to Professor X, who by now has pretended to pass out by falling out of his hovercraft. Warren is there trying to help his mentor up. Warlock demands that Angel carry Xavier over to a stiff board, and it kind of looks like that thing that Lex Luthor had uh, Superman strapped to in that one issue way back in the long ago. Now, Warlock tries to invade Xavier's mind, but finds that he cannot. So either the old man has gone comatose, or he's broken the Warlock's hold. In whatever event, Xavier has somehow managed to inform Cyclops, Iceman, and Beast how to traverse and break out of the very fabric of Limbo to find them at uh, Warlockistan. We're only on page 10. Um, Warlock then uses his powers to make it seem as though there's gum or some other disgusting, sticky, viscous matter on the floor so the X-Men cannot approach him. And I gotta say, poor Beast is barefoot. Okay, so he's stepping in this viscous, white stuff barefoot, which is pretty gross. From here, Warlock, I mean, he's a pretty reasonable dude. He says, you know what? There's going to be a tournament with the fate of the world hanging in the balance. So it seems pretty sporting for a dude who clearly has the upper hand here. And the uh, the stakes are, if he wins, he gets the world. But if the X-Men survive, he will retire back to his crypt. And from here, I'm going to do you and me a favor by just glossing over the next five pages. It's the uh, quote-unquote tournament. Which is to say, the male X-Men are placed in an arena where they're attacked by all of Warlock's men. I don't know about you, but that's not what you'd call a tournament where I come from. But I mean, when in Warlockistan, I, I guess we play by their rules. Now, the X-Men survive the onslaught, and Warlock proves to be a man of his word. Well, no, no, that last part doesn't happen at all. Uh, when Warlock realizes that the muties are gaining the upper hand, he literally shoots Beast in the face. Uh, with force bolts, not bullets, so not fatal. He doesn't have to worry about being thrown in the hole. Uh, Warlock then grabs Jean and heads for the hills. He winds up leaving Xavier behind, because really, why would anybody want to bring him along? The X-Men give chase through the corridors around the arena. Cyclops uses his deadly cursed eyes to blast through some barricades. Angel deftly dodges more force bolts. And I tell you, it's a good thing for them that Warlock isn't using nets. Otherwise, this would have been over before it started. Now, at this point, Xavier realizes that there are only like two or three pages left, and so he's got to finally save the day. So he thinks really, really hard until his telepathic powers come back full force. That's all it took. He and the Warlock are in a mental stalemate until the baddie decides to use his force bolts to topple one of his many, many, many towers to fall on top of the X-Men. 
But by now, Jean has also regained control over her abilities and manages to telekinetically protect her teammates from the falling rubble. And I mean, in some issues, she can barely TK a tissue to her nose, and now she's halting the fall of an entire tower. Now, Warlock responds by walloping Jeannie with a mental bolt, which wobbles her a bit. Cyclops then lets loose with a cursed purple optic blast. And Beast pulls Warlock's cape over his head, which, thankfully, Jean is there to give us the complete play-by-play of here. Like, really. This is, she says, Hank, you sneaked around behind him and pulled his own cape over his eyes. Which is exactly what we saw. Thanks, Jean. Thanks. Uh, also... She did just call Beast Hank, so going by Warren logic, I suppose this means that she's still being mind-controlled, right? <sighs> never mind, never mind. Okay, now Xavier, not to be outdone, focuses really, really hard and shuts Warlock down. The X-Men then mummify him. I don't know where they found the mummy wraps, but they, they mummified him, and proceed to leave wherever the hell they are. Thankfully, that's where we end it. Unfortunately, next issue threatens us with the menace of the Cobalt Man. So, um, hmm, I'm kind of at a loss here. Uh, I don't want to say this was bad. <laughs> I really, really don't. Um, but it uh, certainly wasn't good. I never thought that I'd be, like, really looking forward to getting into Factor 3. But after this issue and the Adaptoid issue, it's like, okay, give me Factor 3 again. <laughs> Let's get back into that. Hell, give me the Brotherhood again. I don't care. Give me something. Like, this is the kind of story that could have ended with, like, Gene or the Professor waking up and being like, wow, that was a weird dream. And and it probably would have had the exact same impact. Feels a lot like a fill-in. Really, it's a throwaway story. We have a guest artist involved. It feels like uh, just an aside to buy them a little bit of time before we get into a uh, meteor story. Though, I mean, next time we get the Cobalt Man, so... Who can even say? Maybe we'll get another panel or two uh, alluding to what might be behind the big wooden door in Xavier's basement. I I don't know, but I don't really have a whole heck of a lot to say about this. I think I kind of poked a fair amount of fun at it during the synopsis, and uh, I try not to be snarky, but sometimes it's it's really hard to avoid, and sometimes it's the uh, only thing that keeps you going through a story, because this one... I swear I stopped, like, every three or four pages to look at the page number. I was like, oh my, we still have, like, 15 pages to go. And it's not often that we cover stories like that, but when they happen, they they happen hard. So rather than repeat myself even more than I already have, let's just hop into the mutant mailbox here. We got a whole bunch of letter hacks writing in. We got Wally in Florida. Now, Wally liked issue 27, but isn't so sure about the Mimic being a member of the team. Well, don't worry about that there, Wally. He was happy to see the Puppet Master, which makes one of us, and he likes Jean's new cat's eye costume, saying that it uh, makes her look more feminine. Stan's reply is, well, kind of out of this world here. Um, He writes a bunch of gobbledygook about how half the fans love what they do and the other half hates it. He continues by saying, if the fans that do love them start to hate them, then they'll have no fans left. I mean, well, yeah, that's, that's math, I guess, but... What does that have to do with anything, Stan? You you replying to the right letter? I I don't know. Next up, Judy in Brooklyn, who, uh, well, unlike Wally, did not care for issue number 27. But she did appreciate the cameos from Spidey, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, and the puppets of the Fantastic Four. She'd like to know why Jean stopped having the hot pants for Warren and then switched over to Scott. 
and wonders why Warrens become a, quote, fallen angel. Which, I think, is to say, why did they make it so he could temporarily, you know, not fly? To which, I'd ask if Judy bothered to read issue number 26. Now, while on the subject of Warren, Judy wonders how the Worthingtons didn't realize that their son sprouted wings at the age of 13. Which, I'm pretty sure was already explained away. I mean, Warren was at boarding school or some such, right? Um, Judy, we gotta, we gotta work on our reading comprehension here. Uh, Stan basically says just that but warns Judy not to ask how Warren's classmates didn't notice, otherwise he'll never talk to her again. Dwight in Dallas. Now, Dwight loves the Mimic and wants him to be an X-Man forever. He also likes Jean's cat's-eye headgear, and he wants to know about some more of the uh, convenient aspects of Cerebro. You know how Cerebro kind of only pings when the story calls for it, you know, that kind of thing. Stan says he was hoping nobody would ever ask that, and then proceeds to drop a paragraph of pseudoscience on us to explain it, before patting himself on the back for narrowly squeaking by with his, uh, with his answer. I gotta wonder, I mean, with hindsight and uh, fans of my vintage, we look at Stan as like the kindly uncle, you know, the, the guy who, you know, we can't help but to love. I, I wonder how the fans of 1967 took this kind of stuff, because, like, we see it with, you know, it's just overflowing with charm, you know, from our point of view, but at the time they're just like... Come on, man, give me an answer, you know? Uh, anyway, next up we got Mark in Lanark City. Now, he'd like to see an ish where the X-Men go on vacation. So, like, another one? I, I mean, we've had like five or six of those already. He also would like to see them fight some baddies individually, like separately. So, yeah, again, uh, another one? We've seen that a time or two as well. He'd also like the Mimic to stay for good. Now, Stan says, in order to write the sort of story that Mark's looking for, the bullpen would have to engage in months and months worth of discussion, analysis, and somber soul-searching. In other words, don't hold your breath and maybe put your hopes in the refrigerator. Uh, Charles in Oregon. He's not a happy camper. He says, enough is enough. How does the puppet master keep popping up? Why can't the dead stay dead? And, I mean, I, I don't think Chuck reads current year stuff because his head would probably explode. Uh, Stan says that Rascally Roy takes great offense to this, and, I mean, when doesn't he? But rather than turn the typewriter over to him, Stan's just going to send out a tarnish-proof no-prize, which is probably the smartest thing to do in this situation. Next up, Robert in New York. He says the X-Men are the greatest characters since Little Orphan Annie. So, thanks. Uh, He'd like to see a homecoming issue where all the old villains get together and plot their revenge. And Stan says, you know what, that's a pretty good idea, and you never know. Next up, we got Ron in Ontario with his second letter. And he says X-Men number 27 was the best comic he'd ever, ever read. And having read about 20 comic books so far, he knows exactly what he's talking about. Okay, okay, he's read 20 issues of X-Men. I don't know how many issues of comics overall he's read, but uh, I'm assuming it's probably not that many. He says that Roy's become just as good a writer as Stan. He wants the mimic to stay, and he loves Marvel Girl's cat's eye headgear. He also loved the Spidey, Wanda, and Pietro cameos. He'd like to see some more continued stories. Three or more parts, please. Stan thanks Ronnie for his kind words before letting us know that he's put a picture of Roy Thomas on his dartboard. Next up, Shirley in Texas with her third letter here. And, uh, well, she's got some questions. She's got some complaints. This is Shirley, after all. She wonders why the mimic's here. And why is he the new deputy leader of the X-Men? How can that ever be? She hates that Marvel Girl is gone, even though I I swear we're seeing more of her now than ever. She's not a fan of Cyclops accidentally belting Angel with a blast. 
and I'm not sure it was accidental, and Scott's not either. She'd like Jean to rejoin permanently. She cites that the best part of this issue was the new costumes. And check this out, she wraps up her missive by saying that no criminal on Earth has damaged or demoralized the X-Men worse than Stan and Roy. Wow. <laughs> now, Stan, thankfully, it's Stan re- replying to this and not Roy. Stan takes it all in stride, as he always does here. He's, uh, he's a gentleman, right? He even ends his response with a, you know what? We still love you, Shirley. And since this is Shirley's third letter, I'm guessing it probably won't be long before we hear from her again. And you know what? How about we go back in time a little bit? You know, you guys know that I'm tracking all these letters here, and uh, it's it's a silly thing to do, and it's mostly a waste of time, but in situations like this, it it actually kind of comes in handy. Now, Shirley's first letter appeared in X-Men number 23, where she basically complains about everything in the X-Books and Marvel. And Marvel. She does not like anything. Then, the next time we heard from her was in X-Men number 28, where she complained about how corny the book was getting. Hmm. Shirley, maybe this isn't the hobby for you. Uh, you know, there are coins and stamps out there that need collecting. Brand Ech is right across the street. I-, I hope I don't come across as a gatekeeper, but uh, maybe this isn't the hobby for you, Shirley. Maybe consider uh, finding some joy. But that is where we end the, uh, the mutant mailbox. But we do have, of course, our bullpen bulletins. Otherwise known as a batty barrage of bombastic bulletins bursting with bipartisan banter, barefaced banality, and unabashed bull. Got it all out in one. These are all uh, from the Did You Know department. First, uh, did you know that uh, Marvel superheroes are on TV? (laughs) Well, you don't say. Uh, Now, Stan says if they're not on the air where you live, you ought to introduce yourself to your local TV station and order them to face front. Did you know? Gene Colan just bought a motorcycle and thought he was super cool. And then he crashed the thing and decided to go back to driving a car. So, um, yeah, I love you, Stan, but um, maybe putting this in here was a little bit of a dick move. I don't know. Uh, Did you know that Brand Ech uses voodoo dolls to injure Marvel pros? You see, Larry Lieber of Rawhide Kid and Nepotism fame sprained his, let me see if I can pronounce this, Sacriliac joint? (laughs) I don't know what it is. Uh, While bending down to pick up a dropped eraser. Now, this is the joint that connects your hip to your sacrum, basically the bone where your lumbar spine meets your tailbone. Then, the same damn thing happened to Bill Everett when he stepped off a bus. So, uh, Branech using the voodoo dolls. Did you know we got a new bullpenner? John Verporten. Verporten? Verporten. I don't know how you say his name. In any event, he is 6'6 and 290 pounds. And Stan suggests that they've only tricked him into the gig so they can fit him for a superhero costume. Did you know that Roy Thomas passed on a scholarship to George Washington University to come write for Marvel? Stan suggests that the world might have missed out on a grade-A diplomat, but at least we're getting a bunch of comic scripts. Did you know everybody loves Jack Kirby? Stan writes a bunch about how great the king is, and uh, I wonder if seeing this sparling issue made Stan recognize just how wonderful Jack is. We wrap up with... The wrap-up, and it's words of advice from Stan Lee to hang loose and face front. Next up, the Mighty Marvel Checklist. All the books fit to print, and uh, probably some that aren't. We got the Fantastic Four issue 61. In it, the Sandman returns, and we learn the fearsome fate of Reed Richards. Spider-Man number 47 has Jazzy John taken on Kraven the Hunter for the first time, and, uh, well, there's something about the Green Goblin, too. Avengers number 38 has Captain America on leave... Black Widow Behind the Bamboo Curtain, which sounds like an adult film, and also The Prince of Power, Hercules. 
Daredevil number 26 has the masked marauder revealed and a perennial ironic favorite, Stiltman. Thor number 138 has Thor vs. Yulik, and we meet the mysterious and awesome Oracle. Strange Tales 155 has Fury vs. S.H.I.E.L.D. and Doctor Strange trying to save Clea. Suspense 88, Iron Man vs. the Mole Man. Captain America vs. Power Man and the Swordsman, and is Bucky really alive? Spoiler alert. Well, maybe. I don't know. Yes and no. Uh, Astonish number 90, Submariner vs. Bera? Byra, Byra, I don't know how to say his name, and Hulk versus somebody. Sergeant Fury number 40, the Howlers rescue a member of the French underground. And then we have our uh, reprint corner here, Marvel's Collector's Items Classics number 8, Fantasy Masterpieces 7, and Marvel Tales 7, so reprints, reprints, and more reprints. We've got our MMMS box, which reveals 26 new members as per usual, and unfortunately none of them really stand out. Speaking of standing out, let's head into our own Mighty Mailbag here. We're going to start with a letter from Billy D talking about X-Men number 29. He says, Hey Chris, it's great to see the Essentials back. The Mimic is one of my least favorite characters ever in the Marvel U. That said, I'm still glad to see your, you back with the old school coverage and look forward to more soon. Well, thank you so much, Billy. And yeah, the, the Mimic is not a great character. I mean, we talked a lot about the Mimic and how he could have been. A pretty cool character, but uh, they just didn't let him be a pretty cool character. It's weird how they, they create such a potentially powerful guy, and, well, they depower him like every chance they get. He's only been around ten issues, and he's been depowered twice. It's, I don't know, kind of silly. Kind of silly. Maybe that's just the Silver Age way of writing yourself out of a corner. Which, I, I guess there's merit to that. You're not thinking too hard. It's just a, a way to facilitate uh, stuff. But thank you so much for uh, keeping the faith, true believer, and keeping a uh, faced front, Billy. Thank you so much. Next, how about we head into the voicemail box here? It's been a little while, and uh, this one's actually been sitting in the voicemail box for quite a while since it had to do with the essentials, and we really didn't get much of an essentials season last time out. I think we only got three issues in because of uh, how weird the DCBS shipping was on the current year stuff, so I didn't get the opportunity to share this one in a timely manner, but uh, I still want to share it right now. Hey, Chris, this is Andrew uh, calling you this morning with an essential X-Labs voicemail. Um, listening to today's episode, uh, X-Men 28, the one with Banshee, uh, struck me that the Mimic has all the powers of the, you know, original five, but what about Professor Xavier's powers? If he can uh, mimic Newton's powers, why hasn't he shown any uh, uh, telepathy? Um, now, maybe I mix, mix, missed something, uh, which tends to happen when I'm listening to the Silver Age stories because they kind of uh, aren't that great, in my opinion, and sometimes I zone out. But... Uh, I don't think I did, so my question to you is, why doesn't the Mimic uh, mimic Professor Xavier's powers? All right, Chris. Talk to you later. Thank you so much for the call, Andrew. And yes, that's, a, that's an interesting question, because we've seen that the Mimic can use Professor X's power, and he has seldomly. You know, I figure Professor X is probably, I mean, he's proven time and again that he's the only one who can save the day in so many of these issues that the Mimic would lean on those powers a little bit more, but for whatever reason, chooses not to. 
Now, this might just go back to what we were talking about uh, with uh, Billy's email a minute ago, where the Mimic had the potential of being a very, very powerful character, like a top-tier threat for for the X-Men, for, for any for any heroes, right? Or he could have been a top-tier hero. And it's like they were afraid to really pull the trigger on him here. I think they may have written themselves in a corner with this character, where they made him too powerful right off the bat and had to, I don't know, kind of just uh, reel him back in to make him make him somebody that could be beaten. And I think if they went all the way with him, I mean, how do you beat him? He becomes like almost an onslaught-level uh, threat. And while we know that uh, onslaught can be beaten with the Care Bear stare these days, uh, it wasn't always that way. So I wonder if uh, maybe it was a matter of convenience that... Maybe the professor was a little bit outside of Mimic's mimicry range? <laughs> I don't know, but uh, it's a very interesting question, and one that I think we are probably thinking about far more than Stan or Roy did back in the long ago. Now on to our next voicemail. Hey Chris, this is Jesse D. Just reaching out to say how much I appreciate everything that you do for, for all of us fans. Um, I really also appreciated hearing your comments and your instructions on on how to create and make a good podcast. It's something that I've considered doing over the past few years, but I've never gotten out to actually do it. Don't think I ever will either, but uh, I really appreciate you sharing your experiences, uh, things that you uh, have to say to others about it. Um, thank you so much for the Facebook group and for all those who uh, participate in it. It's, it's funny that I was able to, you know, just looking at my Facebook page, it's now uh, saying that, you know, a lot of the members of the Facebook group, the the system is just saying, hey, you know, maybe you want to befriend these people. Maybe you want to add them onto your personal group. So that's really cool to see people uh, on there that I know that I've heard their names or that I've reacted uh, and spoken with on Facebook. So thank you for all that. And pretty much until I create a a podcast named X Relevant to just say the opposite of everything you do on yours. Make mine excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jesse. That really means a lot to me. Um, I never really considered the uh, the community building aspect of uh, of what we do here on the show. So to hear something like that uh, really it really touches me. I I, I can't put into words how that makes me feel. <laughs> thank you. Also regarding my, uh, you know, quote-unquote idiot's guide to podcasting that I shared uh, about a week, maybe two weeks ago. I can't remember off the top of my head how long ago it was, but it was uh, episode 264 of Regular X-Lapsed. During that, I answered a question from a, maybe a listener, maybe just someone who's seen me on Twitter promote stuff. I I don't know if it's a, a person who's ever listened, but they did ask me a question about you know, if I had any kind of advice for how to start a podcast. And like I said there, I usually kind of I kind of go surface level when I answer that question a lot of the times because, you know, I don't feel like I'm anyone to give advice uh, or anyone with anything really uh, relevant or worthy to say. So I'll usually just go with my basic, hey, you know, just love what you talk about. Be passionate about the stuff that you choose to speak about because that's what comes through. Over the microphone, I feel more than more than things like accuracy, more than things like uh, having a great radio voice, more than coming across as wildly polished or perfectly edited. I think that passion 
really trumps everything. And I think that that's the one thing that really puts us all together is how much we care about, you know, the thing that we're talking about. And I talked about how I feel like uh, podcasting is a more, uh, for lack of a better term, intimate <laughs> relationship between listener and uh, and host, presenter. I feel like we're a lot closer than, you know, just listening to a radio program or listening to uh, a TV show in the background or watching a TV show or a movie. I, I think that podcasting is a much more personal medium. But rather than basically repeat everything I said in that episode, I could just uh, point you over to it. If anybody's interested who may not have checked it out, it's in uh, X-Lapsed episode uh, 264. It's the X-Men number 3 episode, and it's probably the last 40 minutes of the show. So if you wanted to pop around, if that's something you want to see, that, that would be pretty awesome. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. It's been uh, far better received than I thought it would ever be. Um, I kind of thought that people would roll their eyes hearing... Someone like me talk about you know how to do something, and uh, it was eye-opening that it really wasn't the case. I think that experience is really the best educator. So if we can learn something from someone else's experiences, then that's a cool thing. So if anybody actually learned anything from the stuff that I babbled about, or just enjoyed hearing me babble about it, in either event, that's that's awesome stuff. And uh, Jesse, you talk about having the idea to uh, perhaps start a show, and uh, I've had other friends recently talk about maybe starting a show. Uh, I want to let you guys know that I'm here to help. So anything I can do to help you out along the way, if it has to do with scripting, editing, uh, writing, recording, anything like that, please feel free to reach out. I'm easy to find as always. So if anybody out there is thinking about starting something and maybe there's something getting in the way, maybe there's something blocking you, maybe it's a maybe it's a equipment issue, maybe it's a confidence issue, maybe it's just a another kind of issue. I'm here to help. And while I probably wouldn't be able to make someone else's show like a top priority, I will be there to help out whenever I can. But thank you so much for that voicemail, Jesse. It really does mean a lot to me. Now, earlier in the episode, I said something about maybe doing a fake-ass comics history on the Maha Yogi. Um, so let's do a, maybe not an inch-deep mile wide, but maybe a two-inch-deep mile wide look at this, uh, at this superhuman mutant character. Um, now, he first appeared, of course, in Journey into Mystery number 96, September 1963 cover date, the same month as X-Men number 1. And it's worth noting that this story also claims to feature the final appearance of President Kennedy. He wasn't long for the world at this point. Now, after the Mad Merlin was uh, tricked back into his crypt by Thor, we get the story we just discussed now. And, well, we're going to see him again in these pages in X-Men number 47. I bet you can't wait for that. I know I can't, right? Um, it's an issue which will pit him against Iceman and Beast, but um, we'll get there. We'll get there before we know it. Yogi would then go into hibernation until 1977, when he'd appear in two issues of Incredible Hulk. This is issues 210 and 211. In it, he would start up Merlin Enterprises with the express purposes of, you know, taking over the Earth. Hulk would team with Dr. Druid and have to take on Yogi's monstrous minion, Mangu. Now, this story wraps up with Yogi's age catching up to him, uh, withering him into an ancient old man. Loyal to a fault, Mangu carries Yogi away and places him in suspended animation. Stonehenge gets involved. It's, it's weird. Now, our man is tied in with some established continuity at this point. He's tied in with the Sumerians and the Hyborian Age stuff, the Conan stuff here. And also, X-Lapsed favorite, Morgan Le Fay. 
Okay, we jump all the way to 1991 and Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme number 27. In it, the doc deals with the possessors, and a bunch of obscure cameos appear, and this bit actually explains how Yogi gained his immortality. In this, he grabbed a fragment of the item known as the Blood Gem, which granted him eternal life of sorts. We go ahead to Avengers Annual number 22 in 1993, which ties Yogi in with the Black Knight. We got medieval warriors, including Yogi. They appear to try and steal the Ebony Blade from him. He'd later have a stint in Captain Marvel. This is uh, the genus Vel. He's a, he's a baddie there, and as far as I know, that's the last we've seen of him. Though it's worth noting that in the all-new official handbook of the Marvel Universe, A to Z number 7, which had a July 2006 cover date, it was revealed that Maha Yogi was, in fact, not a mutant. Boy, oh boy, what a reveal. Uh, will we ever see him again? <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> Um, let's take this one home here. Uh, let's do some shout-outs here, thanking the folks on social media for sharing the, uh, the show. Over on Twitter, I want to thank 21st Century Boys, Jeremiah, Billy D, Joe Crawford, Kirk Spencer, and Comics42. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Joe Crawford, Andrew Franklin, Walt Nealon, Billy D, Jesse D. Young, and Corbin Owens. Thank you all so much for, uh, signal-boosting and spreading the word. While I'm thanking folks, I want to thank the patrons over at patreon.com slash xlapsed. Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, and Mark Jagger. Your support means the absolute world to me, so thank you so, so much. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago how easy it is to get a hold of me, so let me tell you how. You can find me several different places. Uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call in to the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You could also join us on that Facebook group that is 90s X-Men on Facebook. Of course, the complete Chris and Reggie audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and you can find that anywhere you find noise. Last but not least, there is, of course, the Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash xlapsed. If you dig the show, if you dig what I do, if you some for some reason want to hear more of me, uh, you can go there and you'll find me. But I think that's going to do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for deciding to spend some of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya! <laughs>